0: According to Open Door, a ministry that uh, focuses on the persecuted church, every day 13 Christians give up their lives because of their faith. They're killed every day. According to Open Doors, 12 churches, 12 church buildings are attacked and or destroyed someplace in the world. And according to what I was reading last night, every day 17 Christians are either unjustly arrested or imprisoned or abducted, and that doesn't even count one of the primary forms of persecution in a country like Afghanistan, which is forced marriages, where a girl will be taken and forced to marry a Muslim man, many of them at the age of 10 or 11 or 12 years of age. The president of Open Doors, David Curry, writes, The numbers of God's people who are suffering... Should mean that the church is dying. That Christians are keeping quiet, losing their faith and turning away from one another. But that's not what's happening, he writes. Instead, in living color, we see the words of God recorded in the prophet Isaiah, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, from Isaiah 43, 19. I had coffee yesterday morning with uh, a dear brother who... I met, he's from Summit Church, but he was team leader serving a Central Asian mission team. And uh, had the opportunity to teach and lead them in an area group meeting several years ago in Thailand. And he still has many dear Christian brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. And we were talking about the country of Afghanistan. We were talking about what's going on there. And it's interesting because as as Americans are pulling out of Afghanistan, I I don't know if you've read, I read even this morning, the Taliban is just shocked at how quickly they are able to take back over district after district after district after district. It's happening faster than they imagined it would happen. The Afghan army is coming and laying down their arms and turning over their equipment. American made equipment, by the way. And everyone is just, just amazed at how quickly this is taking place. We haven't even lowered our flag yet. What does that mean to Christian brothers and sisters? Afghanistan is second only to North Korea in the persecution of the Christian. So what will that mean for these brothers and sisters in Christ? I, I don't know. Here's what is interesting. And this brother was sharing this with me yesterday. Afghan government is requiring all Afghans to apply for and receive an official digital ID card. And for the first time, for the first time, a group of Christians has determined that they have, that they're not going to hide their faith anymore. And that on that government issued ID card, they are putting Christianity as their faith. First time that's ever happened. And we don't know what may happen because of that. What this brother feels like will happen is that another group of believers, another group of that silent church, will be motivated to publicly identify themselves as followers of Jesus. And that more and more will do that. Here's what I know about those brothers and sisters in Christ, that we see a model Of that type of willingness to live boldly for Christ in Revelation chapter 11. What we see in Revelation chapter 11 are two faithful witnesses who stand up against the hordes of hell, against demonic opposition, against opposition from a culture and people around them. And they do so boldly and they do so faithfully, proclaiming the word of God. And they do that until God is finished with them. And then they're killed. And then they're raised. And in that, we see a pattern that we see throughout, really, all of Scripture, especially in the New Testament, and especially in the book of Revelation, in the letter that we've been in. Because the pattern of Christ is the pattern of Christ's followers. The Lamb who was slain is now risen and standing. As the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb who was slain is now alive and ruling and reigning and his path to that throne was over the top of Calvary through the cross through the tomb through the resurrection and it will be so for us too if we walk with him. And so we come to Revelation chapter 11. We've been in 10 and 11 for the last couple of three weeks. It's an interlude in between the craziness, if you will. It's just a this cataclysmic picture of of judgment and wrath being poured out from the throne of God. It's an amazing picture that we see. and, And it's like when we come to Revelation chapter 10, it's like, give me a break. I need a break from all this. And that's what we have in Revelation 10 and 11 is an interlude. A break. And John in chapter ten sees this this humongous angel holding this little scroll, and he's told to go to that angel and take that scroll and to and to eat it, and and the word is to him sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach. And it's a word that he is to proclaim to the peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And then in chapter eleven We're presented with these two witnesses, and we started it last week. We got through the first two verses. Let's look at it again. All right. Revelation chapter 11. Starting. I'll I'll go ahead and start reading in verse one. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for forty two months so those first two verses, as far as we got last week he's told to go and measure this temple all right and, and we discussed last week briefly what this temple is it is it is it a a the temple that's in heaven, is it the temple we see throughout the book of Revelation, which is, is this spiritual temple, if you will, or really it's the model for what we see on the earth, according to the writer of Hebrews. Is it that? Or is it a literal temple that will be rebuilt, as some say, in the Great Tribulation? And we read this account in Daniel. Of, of the Antichrist, the beast coming and making a covenant with the people and, and agreeing to allow them to be, rebuild their temple and reinstate their sacrificial system. Is it, is it this actual temple that is being measured? Is it, a, is it this earthly building? Or is it to be symbolic representative of the church? Those are all valid options. Faithful brothers, faithful teachers, faithful preachers hold to all of those different views. Here's what is agreed upon with all of these images and all these things that are so hard to figure out is that God knows and protects his people. Those who are inside that temple are safe. Those that are outside are not. And and those that are inside are sealed. They're marked. They're able to stand in the day of judgment. That same picture that we saw before. Let's pick it up in verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses... And they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. We'll, We'll come back to that in just a second. So, there are those that are on the inside and there are those that are on the outside. But that outside group, those who are on the outside Are not left without a witness. And God has here in this text. This this these two faithful witnesses that are given for us there in verse chapter in in uh, in verse three. So let's let's think about these these two witnesses for just a second. Like who are they and what is it they are doing and what might that mean to you and me. Okay. So as we look at these two witnesses, notice first off how they are sent out. They are sent out with authority, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses. So, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. In the Old Testament, the witnesses, the prophets were given that command to go and say, thus says the Lord. That was their message. It was a direct message from God to the people around them. And so they're given this authority. It's the same thing Jesus did with his disciples in the gospel of Mark. He sent them out with authority to cast out demons. So these two witnesses, whoever, whatever they are, are given the authority of God. And they are given support in that they are there with one another. There are two of them there. And that's not insignificant. All right. We need to we need to note that. Why two? Well, in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, we're told that it's two witnesses that are required to validate a testimony. A testimony is not valid if it's not coming from two or three witnesses. And then we're also, again, Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. And the idea of that being validated and that support and encouragement that came along with them, he sent them out that way. So who are these two witnesses now? Then we're starting to get into the deep grass. All right. This is this is the deep rough. Who are they? One commentary that I have has 15 possibilities of who these two are. If you're keeping score at home, here they are. One says the Old Testament and the New Testament. OK, one witness is the Old Testament. The other witness is the New Testament. One says it's just the witnessing church, the two of them, just a picture of that. Another option is it's just general witnesses, all right? Old Testament and New Testament witnesses would fit this category. Some say it's Elijah and Enoch. Why would that be the case? Because these two witnesses we're going to see later on are taken up into heaven, and so we're Elijah and Enoch. So, all right, maybe it's those two. Some say it's Elijah and Moses. Why would it be Elijah and Moses, maybe? Well, they met with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, Right? And, 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 and it's taught in Jewish circles that they will literally return before the end. So some say it's Elijah and Moses. Some say it's Elijah and his disciple Elisha. Some say it's James and John. Some say it's Peter and Paul. Some say it's the law and the prophets. Some say it's the law and the gospel. Some say it's Israel and the church. Some say it's Israel and the word, the written word. Some hold to, and this is, this one has, I I can identify with this one in some ways, I kind of like this one. That it's the churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia because they were the two faithful witness churches. So some look to them. But like the rest of Revelation, if we want to be faithful, I believe, to read it and understand it. We don't necessarily look forward to what's about to take place. We look back on what the Old Testament has already said and how John weaves that in time and time again to the book of Revelation. And this one to me is really not that complicated in some ways because in the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah, it's alluded to directly. There's a direct parallel between what John writes here and what is in that Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah. So turn there. Just go back to the left there in your Old Testament to the book of Zechariah. Find Matthew and go back two to the left. So when we think about who these two are, I think Zechariah 3 and 4 are a big help to us. The context for Zechariah is the people of God have been released from their exile and, and Ezra goes along. Ezra is a, is a parallel here. And they've been commanded to rebuild the temple. They've been commanded to go back and rebuild. And they are led in this by Joshua the high priest. That's not Moses' Joshua. This is a different Joshua. They're led by Joshua and the governor, Zerubbabel. So Joshua is referred to there in chapter three. And then in chapter four, listen as I read, follow along. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who has awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold, a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it with seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. And then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Now, notice what it says here in this next section. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So I believe here in Zechariah chapter four we're given a really clear at least at least a good reminder maybe of what John is thinking about as he writes this. And these two witnesses in the mind of John maybe perhaps go back to this prophecy from Zechariah, where he sees Joshua the high priest and he sees the rubble the governor, given authority by God to rebuild. To preach and teach and rebuild and lead the people of God in the mission that God has given them. And they do so carrying the light, i.e., a lampstand, a lampstand that is empowered by the Spirit of God. So the lampstand is this picture of light, and this olive tree is this picture of olive oil or the oil that burns that lamp. And we see that throughout scripture, this picture of the Holy Spirit being light and of the oil of the Holy Spirit. So this picture that we see here before us, they are called to prophesy. They are called to speak the word of God. These two witnesses that are outside the temple back over in Revelation chapter 11 are called to to proclaim the word of God. That word that's sweet and bitter. A word that offers salvation. Which if you refuse. Becomes the bitter word of judgment. And they're called to proclaim that. And so while we're not told exactly who they are. We're told that they will prophesy for 1260 days. We're told how they're going to prophesy. It's going to be in sackcloth. There's a brokenness. There's a humility as these messengers proclaim this message. Oh, there's a word for us in that church. That as we look around a broken, hurting, crying world that's just dark in sin. Is there a humility enough about us and a brokenness enough about us that we would wear that sackcloth at least clothing our hearts in it? And just be broken by the brokenness around us? They're wearing this sackcloth as a picture of this humility and this brokenness. And they are empowered by the Spirit of God to witness and proclaim what it is God has called them to do that. They carry this light of truth empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit. And remember back in Revelation chapter 1, what were the lampstands? They're the church. These seven lampstands represent the church, it tells us in Revelation chapter 1 verse 20. And notice what else. I like the fact that they bring the heat of God's Word. I believe that's what that means. Now, this isn't fire-breathing dragon kind of stuff, okay? It says there that that fire pours from their mouth in verse 5 and consumes their foes. This isn't like the sons of thunder thunder wanted to call down, okay? Jesus had to back them off a little bit, no. I believe this is the word of God. Jeremiah 5.14 says, Therefore says the Lord, the God of hosts, Because you have spoken this word, behold, I'm making my words in your mouth a fire and this people would and the fire shall consume them. So they bring the heat of God's word. They bring the heat of the word of judgment. They bring the heat of God's truth. But then they also are just echoing the power of these Old Testament prophets. You see that? Elijah should come to mind as we see this picture of the rain being shut off for three and a half years. Because it was Elijah who shut up the sky of Israel as he prophesied and God judged. And there was neither dew nor rain for that period of time. And it was also Elijah who, by the way, when enemies confronted him, fire fell from heaven and consumed them twice. So we see the power of Elijah in these prophets. We see this echo, this image of Moses there who turned the water into blood. In the plagues in Egypt. So do you see the power? Do you see the validation? Of how God brings about these miracles. These signs of judgment. To give credibility to his word. And here these two witnesses are standing up before these people. He's standing up before those who are outside the temple. And they're proclaiming the word of God. They're proclaiming the the gospel. And they're proclaiming the word of judgment. And this is one of the reasons why I'm inclined to... To to believe that what these two witnesses are, if if you will, is the spirit of Joshua, the spirit of Zerubbabel that is present within the church. That we're called to stand before a lost and hurting and dark and oppressive, violently opposed to the gospel. We're called to stand before that world and be faithful in doing what God has called us to do. And And I lean in that direction with this. I'm not, I'm not, I'd love to talk to you about it. If you see it differently and let's talk about it. Here's the point. I think this is the point. Even if we disagree on some of these things, God empowers his people for the purposes that he's called us to. All right. And regardless of the period of time, it's in his hands. And regardless of the might of our enemy, which we'll see in just a minute is huge. We're empowered by his Holy Spirit. And the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel is the word of the Lord to us today. It is not by might. It is not by power. It is by my spirit, says the Lord. It is not by human instinct. It is not by political persuasion. It is not by our education or our eloquence. It is not by our lights and our sound and our gifting. It is by the Spirit of God. Amen? That's the only way. That's the only way that was going to be rebuilt in the Old Testament. It's the only way that God brings about his kingdom today. By the power of his Holy Spirit. And we see that in these two witnesses. And they are secure. Remember, there's this, this, this security that we must remember. These two witnesses are bold because they are at rest. They are bold because they're secure. I'll develop that more in just a minute. Look at the rest of the text, starting in verse seven. And when they have finished their testimony, that beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nation will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because of the two prophets that had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. All right, let's let's look at this, this opposition that comes. Okay. now the point of this passage, as we close it out, is the opposition overshadowed by a resurrection. Let's look at the opposition before we look at the resurrection. There is a powerful witness confronted by a powerful enemy. And we need to be aware of that. All right. So there is this this enemy This beast, it says in verse 7, that rises up from the bottomless pit. Now, we'll hear a lot more about this beast starting in in chapter 13 and then again in chapter 17. Uh, Paul calls him the man of sin, the lawless one. John calls him the Antichrist repeatedly in 1 John. So we'll have this picture of this one who is possessed by Satan and seems to be empowered by Satan coming up from the abyss from the pit who is being used to confront the people of God oppose the people of God and according to Daniel will be placed in this seat of authority for a period of time that that's what we see and he he comes against these witnesses and he comes against them powerfully it says that he makes war against them this is not just a one-time opposition this is a fight this is war And he comes against them with the power of hell. Which, of course, later on in Thessalonians, Paul says that it's the breath of Jesus that destroys this one. Just remember that. It's just, and he's gone. Nonetheless, he is powerful. And it says that they face him, and when they finish their testimony, I love that. Remember what I said last week about Jim Elliott. Jim Elliot sent a a letter to his parents. He says, remember that you are immortal until your work is done. But then he says to his mom and dad, don't let the sands of time get into the eyes of your vision to reach those who are still in darkness. They simply must hear. Don't let the sands of time get into your eyes and inhibit your vision. These two witnesses did not let the sands of time or the sand of opposition Stand and get in their way. They still have this vision, this witness. I was thinking about that this week. Just in regard to, just in regard to some people that have just ministered to me over the years. We had a dear friend who passed away last week in Boone at the ripe old age of a hundred, just short of a hundred and one. I grew up in First Baptist Church with her and her family. And they've been such a witness to me and to Susan and to our whole family, just just in in how faithful she was. And I couldn't help but think about her. I couldn't help but thinking about some of you. That according to Acts 13, 36, that David, it says, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. That's how it'll be for all of us. I I thought about Miss Ida and... Folks, in our church, when it says in Psalm 71:18, even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation. I will tell you why God still has you here. So that you will proclaim his might to another generation. You don't retire from that. You should not rest from that. And here's this picture of these two. I just kept thinking about that this week. When they had finished their testimonies, they were attacked and they were killed. I don't know what stands in store for these brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, but some of them will be some of that, some of that throng that we see below the throne crying out, How long, O God, before you avenge us? Some of them will die. Some of us might. That much we know. Because they are opposed with this powerful enemy. And and then they are disgraced. Notice what it says there. After he kills them, they lay in the street. Their dead bodies lie in the street of that great city. And again, there's much discussion of, well, what is this city? Is this city symbolic? We see that it represents Sodom, which is this picture of immorality and wickedness. We see that it represents Egypt, which is this picture of idolatry and thousands of gods, if you will. We see, though, that it's referenced as the city where their Lord was crucified. So in some way, Jerusalem is there in that picture that we see there. It's it's a culture. It's a city. It's... It's opposed to God and his people and to his prophets. And there those dead bodies lie in that street, it says, for three and a half days. And the same people, those nations, those, those tribes and those tongues and those peoples and those nations, out of whom people are going to be redeemed, are celebrating that these are dead. It, 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 there seems to be a global celebration here. Danny Aiken calls it. Happy Dead Witnesses Day. A new holiday. Here's what he says. This is the only mention of rejoicing in the book of Revelation. Men and women will hate God so much that only in the killing of his precious servants are they made happy. So they're exchanging gifts. And celebrating that these two are lying dead in the streets. And it says, that, you know... I just take great encouragement from uh, while we may not understand exactly what these time references mean. They are timed. It's a limited amount of time. If this is Daniel's 70th week from Daniel chapter seven. Then it's then it's uh, that three and a half days, if you will. Or three and a half years, those weeks in Daniel or weeks of seven years. There's just a limited period of time. Whatever these saints are facing, they are facing it for a limited amount of time. All right. Daniel even says in Daniel 7.25, the saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years. God's got that time in his hands, church. I don't know how long it is, necessarily. But it's a limited amount of time. And then look at verse 11. After three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard with a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. Again, what would the Old Testament, what could we hear or see in the Old Testament that might give us some insight into what John might be thinking? Certainly he's thinking about his Lord, right? He's thinking about Jesus himself. And perhaps his mind goes back to Ezekiel chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in this, out, brought me in the spirit in the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley that was full of bones. And he led me around many of them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. And in Ezekiel 37, he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you. And you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as, I was, as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet. An exceedingly great army. God's in the resurrection business, church. That's his, that, that, he's in the resurrection business. And some of you who are in Christ, some of us who are in Christ, need the breath of the Holy Spirit breathed into. What has become lifeless? Not because the life of Jesus has left us, but because we've allowed something else to cover it. Ezekiel 37 is this beautiful picture of revival. It's a picture of resurrection. It's a picture of being restored back into what God had called us to be and do. Now some say, okay, in light of this resurrection and what do we see in Revelation chapter 11? This is the picture of Israel's ultimate resurrection. The nation of Israel. Some hold to that view. Some hold to the view that it's the rapture of the church brought up into the clouds like these two witnesses are called up into heaven like the clouds. Some say it's just it's just the resurrection life of Christ that we see in Jesus himself going into those who are his. And certainly that's the case. Here's what I know. I know what Peter said. We've been born again into a living hope. Amen. A living hope through the resurrection of our Lord from the dead. That's our hope. That's our confidence. And so we see these two witnesses killed, slain, laying in the road, laying in the street. And then we see them resurrected and God calls them up. And notice the response. At that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Earthquakes are always a sign of the judgment of God. But yet, here's something a little different. It seems that there might be a, a proper response, maybe. maybe. Maybe they listened and heard the message of these witnesses. Now, we know that from the seven seals, and at least six of the trumpets thus far, and we don't know what the seven thunders were going to say, but it was surely another word of judgment, what we do know thus far in Revelation chapter 9 is the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands. Nor did they give up worshiping demons and idols. Nor did they repent of their murders and sorceries and sexual immorality or their thefts. Judgment itself does not seem to be bearing the fruit of repentance. Repentance. But one commentator I was reading this week, and I really appreciated that, talks about this positive response. By the way, there's much debate there. Okay, I don't know of a single word in Revelation 11 that's not debated. I mean, the more I read about it and the more I studied, it's just like one has this opinion and one has that opinion. Is this a positive response or not? On the surface, it seems to be, the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. That idea, that word of giving glory to God throughout the book of Revelation is a picture of genuine worship. On the other hand, (laughs) this word for terrified is not ever used of believers. So, is there genuine response to the message here and they worship God? Or is there just a general fear? And in some way, God is glorified through that means of judgment. I I lean toward a positive response. And and here's why. And this is what I was reading this week. As this earthquake comes and this tenth of the city falls and seven thousand people are killed. It seems that in the midst of this, there's this word of witness. There's the word of God speaking into the work of God in judgment, it seems. And here's here's what one writer said. The turmoil of history on its own, represented by the seven seals and trumpets on their own, leads only to judgment. But the turmoil of history combined with Christian witness leads some to repentance. So it seems that. Some hold to and and I, and I like the way that seems to unfold in this chapter, that the witness of God's people, the faithfulness of God's people, the testimony of God's people, the hope of the resurrection that we hold to in the face of calamities, buildings being pancaked, hurricanes and tornadoes pandemics. Is God speaking through those things? Absolutely he is. So how is the world to know what it is that he might be speaking to us? It's from the prophetic word of God's people, from those who are walking in the light of the living hope that we have in Christ, who are able to speak a word of scripture into the lives of people around us who can't make sense of it. And they want to know the reason for the hope that we have. And it's in that that we get to speak into their lives that bittersweet word of the gospel. Yes, God loves you. And God loves his glory. And God protected that glory and displayed it in full glory on the cross of Jesus. If you'll repent and come to Christ, you'll know that life and you'll know that hope. But if you reject that, then you face what we read about here in the book of Revelation. And so in some ways it seems to... I'm, I love that picture there. But here's another side of this that I just want to point out. And again, I mentioned Dr. David Garland last week, my Old Testament professor at Southwestern. I, I, love, I love his Revelation commentary. And his word to us from verse 13 here about how some were terrified and gave glory to God... His word, Dr. Garland's word is don't give up. Don't give up on that person you're praying for. Don't give up on that one that you're seeking to lead to Christ. Don't give up on that one who seems so hell bound to destruction. Dr. Garland says, verse 13 shows us that even in the midst of judgment, God is active in the world to save those who repent. And if there is such hope in a terrible time of final judgment, how much more so now? God has not abandoned the human race, regardless of the recurring waves of unbelief. Neither should we. Neither should we, church. So what's the point of this opposition and resurrection? We are called to be faithful witnesses of Christ and we are called to follow his path. And that path is one of obedience. It's one of opposition, absolute certainty that we'll be opposed and that we may be killed for it. It might not be our physical lives, but we will be killed for it. And there is resurrection for us. Jesus promised us that. If they opposed me, they will oppose you. And so, while the opposition to this gospel is certain, and we know that it will severe, it'll be severe, so is our victory. Right? We're, we're promised that. The New Hebrides Islands is a chain of islands in the South Pacific most historians say that those islands that part of the south pacific had no christian influence at all in the early 1800s until these two british missionaries john williams and james harris from the london missionary society set sail in 1839 they landed there on the coast of the new hebrides on January, on, on november the 20th within minutes they had been killed and eaten by cannibals within minutes Forty-eight years later, John Patton wrote this in his journal. Thus were the New Hebrides baptized with the blood of martyrs, and Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that he claimed these islands as his own. So John Patton took his pregnant wife and boarded a ship and sailed for the New New Hebrides Islands. Not long after he got there, she in labor got sick and died and so did the baby. But he hung in there. He stayed there. He had really sensed God's call to go and overcame tremendous opposition even in the going. Here's what is written about John Patton and the opposition that he faced from church members, from elders in his church. One Mr. Dixon exploded. The cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. In the memory of Williams and Harris, being only 19 years old, rang through that conversation. But Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave and there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. In the great day of my resurrection body, it will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our living Redeemer. That's in your face boldness, church. It is. That is confidence of these two witnesses who can rest in Jesus, but not rest in their recliners. Not rest in their rocking chairs. They're at rest. They're sealed. They're confident. They're secure. They're safe and therefore they can risk it all for the sake of the kingdom. May God raise up an army like that here. Let's pray. God, we bless you and thank you for the living hope that we have in Christ. And I pray today, Lord, if there's anyone in this room or listening or watch this that has never trusted in Jesus, Lord. Just speak into the depth of their heart right now and remind them, God, that they face this wrath that we've seen throughout Revelation. But that, Lord, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world paid the price for their sin. And they can receive the forgiveness and hope that is theirs in Jesus by turning from their sin and trusting in Christ. And, God, I pray that you would revive your church today in the reality that we see here. secure in Jesus and risking it all for his sake. God, do that, I pray, in this church. Do it in my life. Father, we thank you today for your word. For that bitter sweet message. Help us to be faithful to carry it. Help us be faithful to live it out. Help us to remember what we pledged to do with Jonathan and Bethany, Lord. And help us do that in the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.